Well, good morning. Uh, if you uh, missed the weekend away, uh, then you really missed out. Uh, but the talks are free, and if you go on our YouTube, Swek YouTube channel, um, you'll be able to catch up on all of the talks. They're fantastic talks on the topic of guidance, how do we know God's will? So don't miss them. If you miss Weekend Away, you also miss the weekend of really intense and fun fellowship, getting to know each other. Uh, and you also missed uh, a few viruses that uh, seem to have super spread. So um, I guess it's you know, two bad things you missed and one good thing you missed. Um, and uh, if you're at home because you caught something on the Weekend Away, thank you for joining us and we really hope you recover soon. Okay, I want to um, show you a picture of this man. Do, does anyone know who he is? Come on, some people surely know. You're Anson. Warren Buffett. Who is Warren Buffett? Has anyone heard the name Warren Buffett? He used to be the richest man in the world. Uh, but he's really famous because uh, as the CEO of uh, the investment firm Berkshire Hathaway, now those of you who have any finance background, Warren Buffett is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time when it comes to investing. Uh, those who don't know who Warren Buffett is and his effect... Think of him as the influencer before there were any influencers, before social media. He is the influencer when it comes to investing, shares. In fact, there is something that happens called the Warren Buffett effect. Such is his influence that what this one man and his company says actually will determine a lot of the times the whole share market. Do you know? If he backs a certain stock or company, the shares of that company will go skyrocketing. If he decides to dump certain stocks, everything will fall apart. Such is his influence that what he says actually determines the share market. This is Warren Buffett. Why am I showing you him? Well, in the first century, John the Baptist was such a person. He was a real influencer and he was a real historical figure. Um, we know from the Bible as well as non-Christian sources that he was absolutely a rebel, a mover and a shaker in his time. He had a big following. Um, his influence is so great that did you know that today there is still a religion that follows John the Baptist? It's called Mandaism. A friend of mine recently met someone uh, who was part of that religion when they were at the peace tent thing in uh, Lakemba a couple of months ago. So what this influencer says actually uh, had a big impact, and especially when we come to the Gospels. What he says about Jesus is as influential as what Warren Buffett says about the share market. You see, it was, it was John the Baptist who first saw Jesus, you remember, and he pointed Jesus out and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because he pointed out Jesus, some of his own disciples became Jesus' first disciples. And it was John the Baptist, of course, who baptized Jesus and launched his public ministry, right? Because of this original influencer, Jesus was marked out, and in some sense, Jesus' public ministry followed that. But here we're in chapter 11 of Matthew, and things have suddenly changed. John is now in prison. He's about to face his own death. And then, surprisingly, here, John the Baptist, this influencer... You see, he's doubting. Do you see there in verse 2? Have a look again at verse 2. Keep your Bibles or your apps open. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? This is surprising. Why does John the Baptist now doubt Jesus? 
the very one who recognized Jesus, pointed him out as the Messiah before anyone else did. Why is he doubting Jesus? And if he's doubting, what does that say about Jesus and who he is? And if he's suddenly flipped, what does this say about John and his own reputation? Well, I want to say that today's passage is actually for anyone who has doubts, anyone who has questions, whether you are not a follower of Jesus just yet and you're asking yourself, is Jesus for real? Or whether you are already a follower of Jesus and you're asking yourself the question, is Jesus still worth trusting and following? If you are a doubter and all of us are going to be at some point, then this passage is for you. Let me pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come face to face, not just with John the Baptist, but more importantly with Jesus, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, come alive to us through these pages. Speak to us, encounter us. And we pray that at the end, we might have some answers to our doubts. Amen. Okay, so uh, the story so far, just to remind you that Matthew's gospel, which we're working through for the rest of this year and probably into next year as well, um, has five major teaching sections, okay? Five major teaching sections. And between each teaching section, there's an action that leads to the teaching. So the first teaching section is the famous Jesus Sermon on the Mount. The second teaching section, which we just finished up last uh, two weeks ago, is a Matthew 10. is teaching about mission and sending out his disciples. Now, the third teaching section is about to come up. Okay, that's in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is going to teach there in parables. He's going to speak about what the kingdom of God is like. And the point of the, those teaching sections is that it's only for those with eyes to see. Okay, the, the parables are actually going to hide some truths and reveal some other truths. And the secrets of the kingdom isn't going to be seen by everyone, but only some. Now, why am I telling you this in advance? No spoilers, of course. But it's because the action section, which we are in now, chapters 11 and 12, is actually going to preview some of that idea. Jesus is going to meet with certain people. He's going to meet with a lot of different people. And they will show that some people will get it, the secrets of the kingdom, and other people won't. All right, so these chapters, the action section, bit of a preview to uh, the next teaching section. All right, let's go to point number two. Remember, John the Baptist here has doubts about Jesus and as I said, it's so surprising because John was the first one to identify Jesus as the Messiah. He was the one who baptized Jesus. And at Jesus' baptism, I mean, it couldn't be more obvious, right? He heard a voice from heaven that says, this is my son. And the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. I mean, with all of that, you have to be asking the question, why is John having doubts now? Why is he doubting? Well, the clue is, of course, his circumstances. Uh, where is John? He said, uh, we, we read in verse 2, he's in prison. Now, in Matthew 14, we find out that John has been unjustly imprisoned by a puppet king, Herod, and he will actually very soon have his own head chopped off. See, his circumstances has not turned out the way that he might have foreseen. Now, I want to say that this isn't because John the Baptist is afraid of suffering. His whole life is about suffering. I mean, John the Baptist really is, I reckon he's the Chuck Norris of the first century, okay? If you know your Chuck Norris memes, yeah? Right? Um, Chuck Norris of the first century, he's a tough guy. Like the prophets before him, I'm sure he was prepared 
for prison. So why is he doubting that even though he, that because he's in prison? Well, here's the reason. Um, look back. I want to show you Matthew chapter 3 and what John's words were when he pointed out Jesus, identified Jesus as the Messiah. Look what he says there. He says in chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, John thought that when Jesus the Messiah came, that he would do this work of judging and sorting, right? The winnowing fork is an agricultural tool that sorts out the wheat from the chaff, right? The good stuff from the bad stuff. This is what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's, that, that if you are righteous, if you belong to God, if you repented and received John's baptism of repentance and preparation, well, you would be saved. God would keep you safe. But if you were unrighteous, if you didn't belong to God, well, when the Messiah came, he would come and sort that out and you would burn up like chaff. That's what John said when he pointed out Jesus. That's what John expected when he saw the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And yet, what's happening here? John is in prison. And he's in prison because of these unrighteous people. I mean, Jesus has been on the scene for a little while. And yet, what do we see? We see no sorting. We see no judgment of the wicked, do we? John, you see, had a right to doubt. And I wonder if you're a bit like John. See, it could be here that you have started or had started a long time ago finding out about Jesus. And, and when you did start out, you found him fascinating. You became a follower of Jesus. And yet somewhere along the way, life hit you with unexpected knocks and bruises. And you're wondering now if Jesus is for real, whether his promises are really for real. Because if they are, then why are you going through what you're going through, yeah? That suffering, that breakup, the unemployment, the depression, the bad marriage, the financial troubles, the crippling illness has a tendency to rock our trust in who Jesus says he is and the promises that he says he gives us. Now, if you are doubting, can I just say, you're in good company, right? Because one of the strongest believers, John the Baptist, he doubted too. Now, we'll come to the doubts later on. But before we resolve the tension, which is in verses 4 to 6, we'll come back to that. I want to see a little bit later how Jesus actually comes to John's defense. Because now that John's flipped, you may have doubts about John. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7 uh, in your Bibles. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. 
I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Okay, see, in case we think that because John's doubting that he's fickle, uh, that he's weak, he's just afraid of suffering, that he's like that reed being swayed by the wind, blown here and there, he'll just bend whichever way, you know, is popular. Well, Jesus says, no, that's not, the, that's not John, right? He's not doubting because he's afraid of what people will think. He's not one of those politicians who will bend any way to win an election. No, verse 10, uh, Jesus quotes the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, don't turn to it. But there's a prophecy there about a prophet like Elijah. Why Elijah? Elijah was commonly known as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And a, a prophet like Elijah, it's prophesied, will come before the Messiah comes to prepare the way. And, and Jesus says, Verse 14, you'll see they're skipping ahead. He says, well, that Elijah-type prophet, that one that was prophesied about in Malachi, well, that's John, right? If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So John's the real deal, Jesus is saying. He's the great one that was prophesied. And because he is the last prophet, and he gets to point people to Jesus, the Messiah, and he gets to point people to the Messiah most clearly, he gets to be contemporaries with the Messiah, Jesus says, because of that, you've got to know John is the greatest. He's the greatest, even greater than Elijah. He's the greatest of the prophets. See, Jesus is coming to John's defense. He wants to say to you, to say to the people around him, John isn't doubting because he's not a great prophet. It's not because he's scared of what people will think. It's not because he's scared that people won't like him. It's not because he's a fake. No, that's not the reason why. So let's come back to the, why was he doubting them? Okay, so here's the reason, verses 11 to 15. The real reason, second half of verse 11, even though John is great, even though he's the greatest of all the prophets up to that time, look what Jesus says in verse 11. I tell you, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Look at this next bit though. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's the key. John's the greatest up to that point, but guess what? If you are the least in the kingdom of heaven, you're even greater than John. By the way, that includes you and me. Because he's saying here, Jesus is saying, John, great as he was, guess what? He was not in a position to see quite clearly enough. Uh, let me explain what that means. You see, there are two periods of history, okay? As according to the Bible, there's two periods of history. It's actually how the Bible's divided. Old Testament, New Testament. That's the two periods of history. Old Covenant, Testament, Covenant, same idea. New Covenant. Now, the Old Testament looks forward to the new by foreshadowing, by prophesying, by anticipating the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. But you see, the Old Testament people and prophets, they only could speak and see in vague pictures, they didn't see clearly because Jesus the Messiah hadn't come yet and he hadn't finished his work yet. Now, John the Baptist is an interesting case because he's sort of standing right at the cusp, you know, the turning point between the old and the new, yeah? Right? That, that, that middle page in your Bibles where there's a blank, right? That's John the Baptist, where he is. He stands at the edge of God's kingdom coming and in some sense he's on the other side because Jesus has already come, but guess what? He still actually belongs with the old covenant. You see what Jesus says in verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. 
John's the last one. He's closer than anyone, but guess what? He's not quite all the way on the other side. He doesn't see clearly either. Because until Jesus finishes all that he's come to do on earth, no one can see clearly. Not his disciples, not John the Baptist, who, by the way, dies before Jesus goes to the cross. Right? None of the Old Testament prophets. Only once those things had all happened... And Jesus dies, rises again, goes into heaven, pours out his spirit, i.e. the book of Acts. When God's rule and kingdom officially begins, that's when everyone gets to see clearly. And that's why if you're on this side, which by the way is us, even we, the least in God's kingdom, we're greater than John. Do you see what I mean? It all depends on where you are in history. And Jesus' point is, it's not John's fault that he misunderstands Jesus. It's almost as if he doesn't, and he can't, he can't know any better based on where he is. He doesn't see as we see. So, what do we see? Let's now sort out all the doubts. You see, John's doubts set the scene for Jesus now to explain to his, John's disciples, to the crowd, to us even, how do we, how do we actually see Jesus and his ministry? So, who is Jesus? Is he really the Messiah? How will he overcome John's doubts? How will he overcome your doubts? My doubts. So who is Jesus? Verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Okay, Jesus giving evidence for why he really is the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ. Right? All the things that he's listed, we've actually seen Jesus do in the, in the pages of Matthew. And all of them really significantly have the Old Testament prophecies as a background. I want to show you from Isaiah 35. It says there, this is written about 700 years before Jesus. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. And look at this verse. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus almost quotes it verbatim, right? When God comes, this is what God will do. And Jesus' resume, his CV, fulfills that to a T. So you should know who I am, Jesus says. But I want you to notice, though, when Jesus quoted Isaiah 35, do you notice what he left out? What did he leave out in his quote? He quoted the second half. He left out the first half. Look at verse 4. The first half, God will come not just to heal the blind and sick. and not, He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. Jesus leaves out the judgment part. Jesus never does things without a plan and a purpose. He wouldn't leave it out unless he intended to. And this is really important. Why did Jesus leave out the judgment part? Because remember, this is why... John doubted Jesus in the first place. Yeah, remember? In John's mind, remember, he, he thought the Old Testament, when it spoke, speaks of the Messiah's coming, it's got to be both salvation and judgment. It's got to be God sorting out the righteous and the wicked. Yes, salvation for the righteous, but judgment for the wicked. And Jesus, what does he do? He conveniently leaves out the judgment bit. And he only speaks about the salvation bit. Do you notice that? Why does he do that? Well, the answer to that question will actually open up this entire passage. So I hope you're with us, because this is a little bit like a mystery that we're now 
getting the answers to. Jesus left it out because that's exactly his point. It's exactly the point that John the Baptist failed to grasp and why he's having doubts. You see, the Old Testament, it seems to picture when God comes, his kingdom comes and his king comes, it's going to come, he's going to come in one fell swoop. In one moment, you would have judgment for the wicked and salvation for the righteous, right? That's kind of what we see in the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes along, we see that this interpretation or this view of the Old Testament isn't quite correct because the kingdom of God doesn't come in one big moment. No, instead, just as there are two comings of Jesus, so God's rule comes first in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but will only be finished, finalized, when Jesus returns to judge. It's a little bit like this. There, uh, there's a mountain that you are driving towards, and this is actually a real mountain, I think somewhere in the, the Russia somewhere region. Um, there, there's a mountain that you're driving towards, and from this point of view, it looks like there's just one mountain. You're driving towards it. Only if you turn 90 degrees, you'll actually see that there's not one mountain peak, but two. That's actually what that mountain looks like from a different perspective. And that's a little bit like the perspective of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. That there's actually not just one event, but two events if you just look at it from a different angle. Jesus is showing us that there is a gap. There is a gap between salvation and judgment when God's kingdom comes because God's kingdom is coming in sort of two peaks, not in one peak. And this is what John couldn't see. And it's here that we'll come to verse 12 because verse 12 is actually the trickiest verse of this entire passage, okay? And if you have a bunch of English translations, you'll see that almost every single one has a different translation. In fact, you probably get a footnote on the bottom of your NIV with a completely different translation. Even then, it's like, what does this mean? Let me try and explain and shortcut that all. What I think is the, probably what verse 12 should be translated as this. It's on the screen, different to the ones you've got on, in front of you. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven... And here are the tricky bits. I think what it's trying to say is the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent men are seizing it. Okay, what does that mean? All right, let's just go with that translation for a moment. Let me try and explain how that fits into what I've just been saying. Okay, Jesus is saying, yes, since he's come from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has been making lots of progress, right? It's been forcefully advancing, because the king has come and the king has been healing the blind and making the deaf hear and making the mute speak. It's been forcefully advancing. The new king has come to drive back the kingdom of darkness. That's the first half. This has happened. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that evil is swept away all of a sudden. It doesn't mean that the wicked are all of a sudden judged. In fact, as the kingdom is advancing... Another thing that's not so good is happening, the second bit, the last bit, violent people are doing their worst. Violent people are seizing it. All right, so both things are happening. The kingdom is gloriously advancing forcefully, but there's also violent people trying to lay hold of it. And the example of the violent people doing their worst is, of course, John 
being in prison, about to get his head chopped off. But Jesus' point is this, and it's the point I've been making with the two peaks and stuff, both. The point is both. Both are true. Both will continue to be true. Both the light and the darkness. They'll both be true until Jesus returns. Now, why is that important? Okay, I know that can be just like a, all right, my brain is exploding. I don't know what to do with this. Let me tell you why it's important. It's important is this. The Christian life is life between those two peaks. You got that? The Christian life happens between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. This is life for the follower of Jesus. And if you get this, this makes sense all of a sudden of so many paradoxes and contradictions in the life of a believer. You don't have to have been a believer for very long to realize that following Jesus is the best thing and the hardest thing, yeah? That experiencing freedom from sin can sometimes be so liberating, and yet why is it that I still struggle so intensely with sin in my life, yeah? That the church, like we experienced last weekend, a weekend away, can be so wonderful And yet, let's admit it, the church and its people can be so flawed and so difficult all at the same time. That you as a believer, you can have so much joy and peace and yet cry so many tears. You see, both are true. And the Christian life lived between the two peaks, the first and second coming of Jesus is going to have both elements like the kingdom of God. Yeah? Now, why is that? Why is there this delay of judgment, delay of Jesus coming to make everything right? Well, my final point. The reason why Jesus is delaying his second coming to judge is what I said two weeks ago. You remember I gave the illustration of that amnesty, that amnesty, the period of time where you get to, um, the example I gave was the gun amnesty in Australia in the early 90s where you get to, hand back your weapons, right, uh, and not get penalized for it, but you only get a period of time. Well, that is why. Jesus' delay coming back to judge is so that we would have amnesty, the time we're living in, the life between two peaks. We have a chance to turn to him before it's too late. Because in God's eyes, we all need amnesty. Like if Jesus came that first time and only that time, and he came both to save and to judge, well, frankly, None of us would have made it. But God, you see, in his mercy, sent Jesus to come a first time 2,000 years ago. And he didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to judge the tax collectors, the scum of the earth. But instead, you see what Jesus did? He befriended them. He won them over. He loved them. He transformed them. He saved them. And as for judgment... Well, the final judgment is delayed until he returns. But of course, there is a sort of judgment in his first coming. You see, judgment day is a little bit like the two mountains as well. Not just one day, it's two events. You see, if you read all the way to the end of Matthew and Jesus is hanging on the cross, you'll actually see that how Matthew pictures Jesus' death on the cross is judgment day. It was a kind of judgment day, except it was not judgment on us who deserved it. It was judgment on him who didn't deserve it. You see, the reason why Jesus could come the first time and save sinners is because the first time judgment fell on him, the one who didn't sin. 
On the cross, the good news is, of course, Jesus bore all of God's judgment for the wicked in our place. So that if we put our trust in Jesus, we can have the salvation and the amnesty and the forgiveness without the judgment. And when he does return in his second coming, the judgment day, if you put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to fear that, right? Because all of your sin, all of your debt has already been wiped clean. It's already been dealt with in his judgment. That is the good news. That's what Jesus comes to bring. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, the judge who would come and be judged in the place of sinners. And if you haven't yet followed Jesus, and if this isn't true of you, and you don't know where you stand with him, I hope that today even, you know what, it's not complicated. You could talk to him. You just tell him, Jesus, I want a, I want a piece of that. I want in. I want to be forgiven. You could do that in your own heart right now even, and he will forgive you, and you can become a follower of Jesus. But if you need more information, um, Stephen said Alpha is finishing tonight, but we'll be running it again in two months' time. And if you miss out this time, come back because it's really worth coming to. But for the rest of us who may already be followers of Jesus, but maybe you're disappointed with Jesus, maybe you're doubting Jesus, maybe you've got questions unanswered, maybe you're figuring out, can I trust him? And his ways, because it's hard. Well, let me get you to remember that, firstly, you're in good company, okay? You're in good company. John the Baptist was a doubter, and so many of us are too. But stick with Jesus, you see. Stick with Jesus through the disappointments and doubts. Do you know that disappointments and doubts can actually get us to see the real him? That often it's the best way of sorting out whether we have the right Jesus that we actually followed the right Jesus? You see, it may be that when you first started on your Christian journey, you thought that Jesus was there and he's worth following because of all the good stuff. Yeah, and you became a Christian and you felt joy and love and peace and fellowship and all the kind of stuff that makes Christianity wonderful. But that's all you saw and you thought, Jesus, you're great because you bring all these blessings. But then life takes its turn and things are hard and that's when you're doubting Jesus and that's where you're discouraged. And you're discouraged, why? Because you think, well, when I had Jesus, I had all these blessings, but now these blessings are gone. Does it mean that Jesus is no longer trustworthy? I don't have Jesus anymore because no blessing means no Jesus. Well, you know what? what's going to happen? You can either give up at that point, which I hope you don't, or you can look at the Bible in places like this and you can actually see in the discouragement and the doubts, that Jesus is the blessing. Even in hard times, that it's not that Jesus is good only because he brings you blessing, but actually Jesus is the greatest blessing. You used to think that Jesus was there to give you the good stuff, and if you don't have the good stuff, it means that he's not there anymore. Now you see that he is the good stuff. That even in the hard times, even in the doubts, it's worth sticking with Jesus because it's in the wrestling that you see that he's truly the blessing. Because he took your judgment in your place and his friendship is in intimacy and him walking with you through everything, that is the greatest good. And he calls you now not to give up following on him, following him, even when the doubts come because he's worth it. He really is. Let's get ready to sing, get the band up, then we pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might show us even more clearer today 
that you really are the blessing. And I pray for those who are searching, seeking, that today you will find them and today they will give their lives to you. And pray for those who are doubting, who are discouraged, that today you will meet them and show them that it is worth following. It is worth following you until you return. Because it's not that you bring the blessing and that's what makes you good. That you are the blessing. And so I pray that people will experience that more deeply and intimately, even in their doubts. Amen.